Our first sermon this month in this Jude, we went through verses 1 through 3, which was contending for the faith, uh, that hapax that legomenon to epigamisma. We, we saw the importance. We realized that we are at war as Christians. As one commentator said, the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. And we are at war against false doctrine, at war against false teaching, at war against apostates and those who might want to corrupt the gospel. And for this church, our doctrines of grace, our confession, all of those things are worth contending for. In last week's sermon, we saw in verses 5 through 7, the effects of the fallen angels, the demons, demonology, and how powerful they are in our lives. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And last week we saw the punishment, God's punishment of the sexually immoral. And we called out some pastors by name who have condoned sexual immorality. And today, in verses 8 through 16, is a denunciation of false teachers and the relevance of Enoch's prophecy. Father, help me. I cannot do this. I'm nothing but a worm in your hand, just a wretch saved by you, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of this church. We ask that your Holy Spirit will minister to us, edify us, strengthen us, strengthen our faith in you. We thank you for your word, your inerrant, sufficient, infallible word. We pray that we would hold it with fear and trembling as we fear you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, To keep this sermon in context, last week we ended with verse 7, which was, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude warned us then, and he's warning us now, of how the sexually immoral will in fact suffer eternal damnation, as well as any other sin that has not been redeemed by Christ. And now beginning with verse 8, he warns of yet another sin among us, more sins amongst this people group, this group of false teachers and apostates. In verse 8, Jude said, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These people were obviously not relying on the Holy Scriptures. Instead, they were relying on their dreams, their thoughts, their imaginations that caused them to defile their own flesh with sin. That's why the sufficiency of scriptures is so important that we must preach, teach, and practice God's scriptures. James speaks of how our thoughts can actually give birth to sin. In James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, 
when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But we Christians, church, we have the way of escape. The church has the door of escape from sin. As it mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10.13, specifically in regards to idolatry, he's left a door of escape so that we can actually escape those temptations. Agreeably, some scholars believe these dreamers here in the text can also be in reference to false teachers whom erroneously claim that they had a special revelation from the Lord, or a vision, or, brother, I have a prophetic word for you today. It could mean that as well. In verse 8d, Jude also states that these false teachers reject authority. Uh Uh-oh. This is where it gets difficult. Have we had a hard time this last year and a half with authority? The churches across America, the churches in Canada? My goodness, this has been a controversy. When to obey the authority and when not to. We talked about this in many other sermons, but it revisits us today. I'm not bringing it up. The scripture brings it up. Some scholars believe that Jude here was referring directly to the authority of God. Others believe that he was referring to the governing authorities that were established by God. I believe that he's referring to both. I believe that he's referring to both views that they are synonymous, that the authorities, the governing authorities, all of them were actually ordained and created by God. Either way, we have to remember that even the governing authorities that were created by God, according to Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, were, in fact, ordained by God. But these false teachers that Jude is talking about here, they despised God's authority. And the governing authorities ordained by God, they despised them. Certainly, it would be always sin to reject God's authority or the authority ordained by God. But what about governing authorities that God created, such as the government? Yes, it would be sin to generally reject those authorities. However, it would be biblical to specifically reject the governing authorities when they either A, forbid Christians to do what the scriptures command, like hold a church service, or B, tell us to do what the scriptures forbid, in other words, telling us to sin, or C, when they go against the scriptures in any other way. Amen? The Christian has a duty to resist or reject a governing authority that demands us to disobey God, his word, and that requires us to sin. That kind of disobedience is actually obedience to God. Let me say that again. That kind of disobedience is obedience to God. And that is why we've always remained open during the COVID era. And as you're under shepherd, though I'm nothing but a worm in his hand, an unworthy under shepherd, I am to remind us all that we belong to his sheepfold. We do not belong to this world. As it says in Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Amen? But these false teachers in Jude 8, they are in absolute rebellion against God and the government that he has instituted. Being anti-government is, in fact, sin. Being anti-government is, in fact, sin. 
As one author said it this way, and I quote, they are rebels against God and against governmental institutions. Depend on them to be proponents of lawlessness and anarchy. Their names are on the membership rolls of organizations that are dedicated to the overthrow of government, end of quote. Today we know liberal groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter that desired to overthrow the government. They actually did overthrow some local governments for a season. And no, we do not have to honor Antifa and Black Lives Matter. They're abomination because they are not one of God's authorities. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, church, we have learned that many Republicans and professing conservatives attempted to overthrow the government on the January 6th insurrection of the United States Capitol. Though the rally or the protest itself was not sin, and I'm a firm believer in exercising our First Amendment, but the rioters and the insurrectors that was sin and lawlessness. That was wrong. This is a fine line of how much of the authority of God that we should obey as a church. It's a controversial gray line to some, but it's clearly black and white to many. But it is not a sin to continue a church service. That is the will. If the sin asks us to discontinue church... It is not a sin to go, the, to go against the will of the government. And that's why we've been praying so much for those pastors in Canada. Praying for those pastors, that God would continue to give them courage. And as I mentioned during our prayer night on Thursday night, two preachers were, were shot in Dallas, Texas, while preaching the gospel on a corner in Dallas, Texas. So persecution is here. We don't know how rapidly it will increase, though. But God is sovereign. And we talked about in the sermon last week how the demons have fell. The scripture talks about these demons. And that God, so to speak, has a leash upon them. We read the confession of faith of what our confession says about the demons. That God has a leash on them. And perhaps he might loosen that leash, metaphorical leash, upon the United States of America. We don't know, but God is sovereign. And he decrees all things. Back to the text in verse 8e, he says, They blaspheme the glorious ones. Full disclosure, church, regarding the sinful acts of those that blaspheme the glorious ones mentioned here. I have been miserably guilty of this. But Lord willing, I repented of the sin many years ago. In my previous days of political activism, I will explain that further. In the ESV, it says that they will blaspheme the glorious ones. And the King James, it says that they speak evil of dignitaries. The NASB says they speak abusively of angelic majesties. So what does it mean to do this sin to blaspheme the glorious ones? One scholar defined it as this. It is those that speak contemptuously and spitefully against authority whether it be divine, angelic, or human, end of quote. Similarly to engaging in apologetics and contending for the faith, which was the first sermon this month was so much about, the command to contend for the faith, to agonize for the faith and sound doctrine, it is biblical to call out, rebuke, and expose sin, as well as call out names of false teachers. It is biblical to defend our faith. 
It is a command to do so. Not, it's not a command to name names, but it is a command to defend solid doctrine. But it is wrong to engage in personal attacks. And this is where I was wrong years ago. It is wrong to name, call people names just because of the way they look or because we disagree with them or that we disagree with them theologically or politically. Let me share with you how I've sinned in this area greatly. Back when Barack Obama won the 2008 ele presidential election, you would have been right to judge me as a man that seemingly lost his faith. I was so angry that I was online just blasting the, our president for a whole year until a pastor rebuked me online privately and shared some verses with me and counseled me, and I talked to him on the phone. It wasn't, it wasn't even my own pastor. It was another pastor online. And God granted me repentance in that area and realized I was wrong. I was in sin. I strongly disagree with President Obama. But I was committing a violation of this verse. I was at sin. It also warns us in Exodus 22:28, which is what that pastor shared with me. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Ouch. Paul echoed those words in the New Testament in Acts 23, 5. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And by the way, church, don't, don't squirm in your seats. I've never seen anybody here do this. I've never seen anybody here do this, so I'm not preaching to you guys, okay? I think everybody's okay in this area. I'm, but during the 2020 presidential primaries, on the Internet, repeating what I used to do. I saw professing Christians and Republicans practice the same exact sin by mocking and personally attacking presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They mocked her looks, and when she was sick during the presidential de debates, she was, had a serious bronchitis problem, and I had bronchial problems. She was hacking. I admit she's not the most beautifulest woman, and I admit her cough did sound terrible. But it is a sin to go online and make personal attacks against a person like that. And today, in July of 2021, only by the grace of God so go I, I see many doing this sin by saying the same things about President Joe Biden and regarding his senior age, senior moments, and lack of cognitive skills. Although I can understand that these are legitimate concerns that we should be concerned about, the one who's the leader of the free world. But there's a right way to question those things, and there's a wrong way, a sinful way of doing it. It's not easy being a Christian, is it? It's easy to, it's easy to sin, isn't it? Especially if you were politically involved in political activism like I was once upon a time. But see, that's what this verse is speaking of. As a church corporately... And as Christians individually, we must oppose sins. We must oppose these sins of those unregenerate government officials. We must oppose the, the, the sinful acts and lawlessness that they legislate, these government authorities, such as abortion, homosexuality, shutting down churches, restricting churches. But we are called to do so without being what Jude warned against. Amen? I understand it's not all easy, uh, always easy, but only by the grace of God, again, so go I. 
Continuing the same context next in verse 9, Jude said, But when the archangel, it's interesting, last week we talked so much about demons, the fallen angels, and now we're talking about Michael, the archangel. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael was no normal angel, church. According to Daniel 1.13, 10.21, and 12.1, Michael was a chief angel. He was a guardian angel. He was in charge of other angels that are our guardian angels today. Better known as Michael the archangel. Michael plays a significant role in the battle against Satan and his demons that we talked about last week. It says in Revelation 12.7, now war arose in heaven. Now remember, the context of this scripture is always back to verse 3 in Jude 3, contending for the faith. That we're at war, the demons are at war against us, Satan's at war against the church and us individually. And now he's equipping us again, not to trust in Michael, but to trust in Christ, to trust in him, not in the angel. But Revelation 12:7 says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Do you know they're still fighting right now? There's a war going on that we cannot see. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 speaks of that. Jude here is saying that Michael was contending with the devil. None of us here are strong enough to contend with the devil. But Michael was contending with the devil. What were they contending over? Well, it says right here in verse 9c that they were disputing about the body of Moses. What's this disputing over? Why would they dispute about the body of Moses? Well, it says in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 6, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. It was obviously, according to the scriptures, God's will that the burial site of Moses' body would be, set, be secret. And that Satan was not to know where this location was. Why? Well, it's speculation. I can only say I'm, I'm speculating here. Perhaps that if Satan knew the whereabouts of Moses, that Satan would reveal that. And then, we would, and then many people would do exactly what God hates, and that's idolatry. They would idolize the place. Or perhaps, again, speculation, maybe Satan would take the whereabouts of the gravesite of Moses to desecrate the gravesite of Moses. It's unknown exactly why, but we do know this, that God had kept it a secret. Satan knows that, Bos that, but that, that Moses' body would become an idol just as God hates idols. He hates idolatry. It's a sin. Again, we talked about that two weeks ago. It's actually a sin that keeps creeping in my life. It creeps in all of our life. I think it was either Calvin or Spurgeon said our mind is like an idol factory. They just keep on spinning those little gears, those little idols keep coming back. I have to keep on repenting them and ask the Lord to rebuke all of that stuff out of my life. Notice that in the second half of verse 9, Jude says that Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is not only important to understand, it's also important to apply. 
This whole epistle is important to not just understand, but to apply and demonstrate in our lives. This really is all of God's word is. Even with all the power, the liberties, and the authority that God gave Michael the archangel, Michael called upon the name of the Lord to do his bidding. He called upon the Lord to rebuke Satan. Moreover, we do not tell the enemy, I rebuke you. I used to do that. Lord, or excuse me, I used to rebuke the enemy. And I, I realize it's, it's not biblical. We have no power. We have no authority. It's Christ, God Almighty. The power is in the triunity of the Godhead. And it is the Lord that can rebuke on our behalf. Next in verse 10 it says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand indistinctively. Well, we're going to fast forward through the rest of this chapter, actually much of it, but what what does one scholar say about that verse, verse 10? He said this, and I I love this. Headstrong and brazen, the the apostates speak disrespectfully in areas of which they are ignorant. They do not realize that in any ordered society there must be authority and there must be subjection to that authority, and so they surge forward and swagger around in arrogant rebellion. End of quote. Moving on to verse 11, Jude declares, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude says, Woe to them. This word woe comes from the Greek word uahi. It is a primary exclamation of grief, and I mean grief. This is the same woe that Jesus used seven times to rebuke the Pharisees and the hypocrites in Matthew 23. And no, church, Jesus was not always gentle. Jesus is not some seeker-sensitive person, as some suppose. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, he said. Woe unto you, hypocrites. Woe to you, brood of vipers. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, etc., etc. This is also the same woe in the three woe judgments shouted out by the angel in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verse 13. Woe, 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 the angel shouted. The same woe. The same woes and the woe judgments. In verse 11b, Jude says that these apostates or false teachers walked in the way of Cain. Jude here is comparing these false teachers to railers and murderers. Just as Cain instructed others in sin, these apostates and false teachers instructed others to sin and to eternal destruction via their own false teachings. Jude's escalation of describing their ungodly reputation continues. They have progressed from the way of the destructive animal that it says here to the way of a murderer, and now worse. In verse 11c, Jude compares them to abandon themselves for the sake of gain of Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion, it says. Jude is referring to them going after the heirs of Balaam whom is the covetous, greedy, false prophet mentioned in Numbers 22 through 24 and Numbers 31, 16. 
Additionally, they are compared to the rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16, 1 through 32. Many professing Christians today wrongfully believe that it's wrong to be critical. They don't understand the value of discernment, and that discernment comes from the Lord. And discernment greatly involves critical thinking. Again, we are his sheep. We belong to his pasture, not to the pasture of this world. In this epistle, in this epistle, Jude again continues his exposing and rebuking of these apostates and false teachers at all. Next, in verses 12 through 13, it says, beginning with verse 12, These are hidden reefs or spots at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These hidden reefs or spots here mentioned in verse 12 are the Greek word spilos. It is a noun feminine and it is another hapax legomenon. This, this epistle is full of hapax legomenons, meaning that it's used only one time in the scriptures and right here. The spot or reef is like a ledge or a sharp reef or rock in the sea. In other words, these apostates, uh, these spots and hidden reefs or apostates or false teachers are as dangerous as a rock or a coral reef not seen underneath the ocean waters, like the Titanic. Hence, they can tear a hole in the ship's underbelly. Recently, there was an incident just in Catalina Island where some of us actually went to recently for lunch. And a boat got too close to the rocky, sharp reefs, and the big white waves slammed it down and crushed the boatman and killed him against the rocks. That's what these false teachers and apostates will try to do to the church to crush you with these spots, these rocks, and these reefs. These apostates, these railers, and these false teachers will try to make a shipwreck out of your church, out of your ministries, out of your families, your marriages, and your lives, as well as your businesses. Therefore, speaking against them is a righteous thing to do, as we've been doing this month. Verse 12a says they will even join us in our love feasts. What is a love feast? That these enemies, these false teachers, will try to join you in your love feasts. Our church, as you know, we used to have them weekly, but now we have them monthly. We have love feasts on our prayer night service. But we don't allow just anybody to join our love feast unless they're part of our church or Christians desiring to be part of our church. Yes, we gladly receive newcomers into our church, but we must be watchful of whom comes to our church. And so let us fast forward through verses 12 through 13. In verse 12d, Jude says that they are like waterless clouds. That's interesting language. These false teachers are like waterless clouds. Because a cloud without water is unreal. A cloud without water is not a cloud. It's fake. It's false. They deliver deception, not water and life. Jude implies these trees look like nice trees. 
that they are fruitless. Nonetheless, they drink water and eventually they die and they are uprooted. Verse 12e says that these people or they are like swept along by winds. Kind of reminds me of the chaff in Psalm chapter 1. They're blown away like the chaff. Verse 12e says that they are swept along by the winds. The Lord does not want his church to be deceived by these false teachers or apostates or compromisers. And that they are swept away with the winds. The Lord wants us to be solid and steadfast in the faith. To be solid and steadfast in the faith and in sound doctrine. He wants our church to be in unity with churches like ours. Let me make this very clear. We are not called to be in unity with all of the other churches. We are called to be in unity with churches that are like-minded, that embrace the doctrines of grace. And I have a hard time being in unity with non-confessional churches. That's very important. That is our, our doctrine of faith. Our exhausted, comprehensive statement of faith is our confession of faith. But there is one church, one church that we will all gather together one day, and that is the universal church. One day in glory in heaven, we will finally figure out who really was saved and who wasn't. We will be every person sitting in this con- congregation that is blood-washed, repented, born again, follower of Christ, written in the Lamb's book of life, you will one day be with the entire universal church in glory with him. In verse 12g, Jude says they are twice dead. This means they are in sin, first by nature and afterwards by apostasy. Twice dead. And that's really the language of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation 21.8? He warned, this is a great verse that I love using in evangelism, and Jesus said, but as for the cowardly, that's spiritual cowards, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for all murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, sorcerers is drug use or witchcraft, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. They will be twice dead. That is the second death. Dead trees in this national forest, which is very dear to your hearts, because y'all live up here. And I, we pray for you when there's a fire up here. I feel helpless, but not hopeless, but helpless. But dead trees in our forest are serious fire hazards for you in this church. And Satan and his demons and his false teachers want to come in just like a fire and burn the churches and destroy our churches and our faith and our doctrine. And we must resist that. Verse 13 says they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I love the language of Jude here. False teachers, they are like wild waves of the sea, like a tsunami or tidal waves that seek to destroy. Satan roams like a lion, foaming at the mouth, walking to and fro, seeking whom he can devour. He would love her to devour this church. He would love to pluck just one of you out of here if possible. 
When boating in the ocean, it's important to watch for whitecaps in the water. And this language talks much about the water and the foamy water, to watch for whitecaps or watch for white waters. And that's what the, the boat, the, the seafar probably didn't do when he got crushed into the rocks at the Catalina Islands. He probably didn't see the whitecaps coming. Furthermore, these waves in verse 13, it says they are casting up their own foam. This casting up the foam comes from the Greek word epavrizo. Ironically, it is another hapax legomenon. And I pay particular attention to those. It means to foam upon, such as figuratively, to exhibit a vile passion, to foam out, to cast out as foam. He then warns that these apostates or false teachers are like the wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In the next passage, Jude further describes these apostates as false teachers. They're, they're synonymous. Next, in verses 14 through 16, is the relevance of Enoch's prophecy. The relevance of Enoch's prophecy. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires that they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." That's a lot. I know I was going to try to teach this epistle in two months, over a two-month period, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have, but as you know, I'm going to cram this all into four weeks. In verse 14a, Jude mentions Enoch being the seventh from Adam. What does this mean? Jude here is most likely referring to the genealogy mentioned in Genesis 5 and 1 Chronicles 1 through 3, that Enoch was the seventh in order. Adam being the first. And after Adam, after his fall, what happened? Sin came into the garden. Thank God for the last, the final Adam Christ, whom saved this church. So what does 14, verse 14b mean? Behold, the land comes from ten thousands of the holy ones. Well, the answer is in verse 15. Verse 15, it warns of an execution of judgment. An execution of judgment that is coming. It says on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. Amen. This church is eagerly waiting for the second coming of Christ. Raise your hand if you're waiting. I am. Amen. Praise God. Everybody but Theo raised his hand. But he's got to pass because he's just such a youngster. Praise the Lord. We're all eagerly waiting the second coming of Christ. The ungodly are going to be judged and his saints, his elect, is going to be brought up to be with him, with the Lord. Verse, in verse 16, Jude said, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Well, there's a lot in here. Regarding verse 16a, some of your translations say that this grumbler is a murmurer. It calls the grumbler a murmurer. It comes from the Greek word gongustes. 
It is a noun masculine, and it is yet another hapax legomenon, used only once in the Bible. This is a person that grumbles or murmurs, one who complains against the will of God. You know, it is a sin for a Christian to grumble and complain. It shows that we're not trusting in the providence and will of God. But this is a worse type of grumbler and complainer. This is a worse type of complainer. Regarding verse 16b, some of your translations call this malcontent a complainer. This complainer is yet another hapax legomenon, which means to be a blamer or to display a blaming fate or to be a chronic complainer or one who is discontented. This is a person that's not trusting in the Lord, obviously. I can assure you that every Christian, including myself, especially me, has displayed these bad attributes uh, described in this passage. However, the key element to look for is consistency or frequency. Are they continually known for this grumbler and complainer? And what is their motive? What is their intent? Though we never know, rarely know what their motive or intent is. Verse 16c suggests that their motive is following their own sinful desires. In other words, they are more than just grumblers or complainers, which we're all guilty of from time to time. They are against the will of God. They're grumbling against the providence of God. And they're following after their own will and the lusts of their own flesh. Another indication or evidence of this person or people group is further, they're further described in verse 16. And I like what, uh, what Rush Dooney said about these, these grumblers. And I quote, Jude calls attention to the evil character of these false leaders. First, they are grumblers, complainers, whose pretense to greater holiness is based on their supposed sensitivity. Nothing pleases them except themselves. Secondly, they are malcontents whom nothing pleases because they believe nothing and are determined to bring down the faith. And third, their sole guide is their passionate love of advantage. Righteous judgment is thus necessary. End of quote. Righteous judgment is necessary. End of quote. In closing, church... Let us be watchful of these aforementioned people, lest they creep into our church. Let us continually contend for the faith and fight the fight of faith. And if necessary, denounce false teachers. Let us examine ourselves continually. As James says, let a man look in the mirror and examine himself. And see that when we sin like them, which we will, we sin frequently, that we will repent more and repeat our sins less. Lord willing, through sanctification and his holiness. Father, thank you for your word. You are so awesome and gracious and holy and sovereign. Thank you for saving your church, your bride of Christ, your elect. We pray now that we would be blessed by experiencing the visible manifestation of your gospel through the means of grace, through the elements of this communion that we are about to partake in, that you would be glorified in that, that Christ, 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 God Almighty, would be edified, exalted, that Holy Spirit, you would be present as we do that in the mighty name of Jesus. 
Amen.